<laughs> I can roar my head off if I want to. <laughs> Let's drink to the golden age. <laughs> well, drink. Drink to me. Drink to my invincible power. To a new era. To a changed world with me as its guiding genius. Hello and welcome to We Read This. My name's Ash and today we'll be looking at the second story in Ovid's Metamorphoses, which is the story of the four ages of mankind. If you're wondering why we're jumping to the second story of the Metamorphoses first, our episode on the first story, the creation story, is over on our Patreon at patreon.com slash this. Um, it's currently the only thing up there, which is um, shocking, um, but there's a, there's a lot more to come soon to uh, make up for the months between November and now February. However, if you're not on Patreon, um, everything today should just about make sense. All you've missed is the creation of the entire world. But don't worry, there's plenty more to come. The Metamorphoses is a 15-book verse epic containing hundreds of myths. As a non-Latinist, I've decided to take the long view of the Metamorphoses, and we'll be going through the book story by story, in order, um, but depending entirely on English translations. Therefore, this series on the Metamorphoses will just as much be about Ovid's translators as Ovid himself. Throughout the versions and adaptations of Ovid's epic, we will be in the hands of people like Chaucer, Shakespeare, and Ted Hughes. For the creation story, I focused in particular on Arthur Golding, the 16th century translator who became known as Shakespeare's Ovid due to the playwright's reliance on his text. But in the wings and getting the odd cue here and there was John Dryden, England's first official poet laureate, lifelong fan and prolific translator of Ovid. Today, for the story of the Four Ages of Mankind, it is Dryden's version we'll be turning to in particular. The Four Ages story is a tale of decline, the innocent and vegetarian golden age being debased, its citizens gradually becoming a race of degenerate scum who pillage the earth and cheerfully await the deaths of their fathers. Both Ovid and Dryden themselves were associated with a so-called golden age. Ovid lived in what is now referred to as the golden age of Latin literature, and his classmates included Cicero, Virgil and Horace. But this age looked a lot more golden in Iron Age wing mirrors than it would have done at the time. Ovid was born in 43 BC, the same year Cicero's decapitated head and severed hands were hammered to the rostra. The year before, Julius Caesar had been assassinated, leading to a conflict between the conspirators, led by Brutus and Cassius, and the Caesarians, led by Caesar's adopted son Octavian and Mark Antony. By the time Ovid reached adulthood, the conspirators had been defeated, but the Caesarians had subsequently fallen out and Octavian had routed Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium. Octavian was made princeps, first citizen of Rome, and took on the title of Augustus. Rome ceased to be a republic, becoming instead a benevolent despotism. Despite the gold standard of its literature, the time Ovid lived in was transitional and edgy. According to Lee T. Percy, Ovid sat sometimes uneasily between the republican and imperial Rome, between a literature of politics and a literature of rhetoric, between, in Hermann Frankel's view, pagan Rome and Christian Rome. Ovid began writing Metamorphoses around about the time of the birth of Christ, something which many commentators have been drawn to, including Ted Hughes, who says in the introduction to his own version of Ovid's book, For all the empire's stability, it was searching higher and higher for spiritual transcendence, which eventually did take form on the crucifix. The tension between these extremes and occasionally their collision can be felt in these tales. They establish a rough register of what it feels like to live in the psychological gulf that opens at the end of an era. Among everything else that we see in them, we certainly recognise this. Dryden, too, has a claim to living in a golden age, albeit a somewhat self-appointed one. In Latin literature, golden age commonly refers to the years between 70 years BC and 14 years AD. The latter part of this, after Augustus, is called the Augustan Age. In our own culture, Augustan Age refers to the literature that emerged 
following Dryden's death and following his footsteps. After the Restoration, England had not only a king returned to the throne, but a host of Englishmen returned to the continent, bringing with them a taste for the culture of the Italian Renaissance. Christianity remained a dominant influence, but tales of antiquity, Greek and Roman myth had become popular too. But even those continental poets, in the words of Dryden, had only restored a silver, not a golden age. Only now, in the time of Charles II, did the wit of Greece, the gravity of Rome, appear exalted in the British loom. The Muses' empire is restored again, in Charles's reign and by Roscommon's pen. Today we'll have a look at the needlework of this loomy empire and at the life of John Dryden, after which we'll go through his version of the Four Ages in full and compare it to other translations of the story. Ovid's Metamorphoses begins with an invocation to the gods, asking them to bless his enterprise. At the start of the last episode, I tried to get them on side by quoting Arthur Golding's translation of it, and today I'll try out Dryden's. Of bodies changed to various forms I sing, Ye gods, from whom these miracles did spring, inspire my numbers with celestial heat, till my long laborious work complete, and add perpetual tenor to my rhymes. If you've been following the podcast, you'll know that metamorphosis has been one of our spasmodically recurring themes. We've seen it in Shakespeare's early comedies, in everyone from Protean Proteus, way back in our very first episode, to Bottom in A Midsummer Night's Dream. We saw a proto-bottom in Apuleius's Golden Ass, a literature professor transformed into a forlorn boob in Philip Roth's The Breast, characters sprouting unrequested penises and vaginas in Will Self's Cock and Bull, and being transformed into a much-debated verminous beastie in Kafka's Metamorphosis. More recently, we discussed Strange Case of Jekyll and Hyde, the story of a man who was at first seemed to have mastered the science or dark art of metamorphosis. So it was only a matter of time before we sampled Dr. Jekyll's original compound, that trove of transformation stories, Ovid's Metamorphoses. Ovid's been orbiting this, these episodes from the beginning. Not just his great theme, but his comedy can be felt in Golden Ass and Shakespeare. And some stories we've already discussed could almost stand as a direct adaptation of Ovid. In Cock and Bull, the story of the rape of Io by Jove gets a 20th century spin in which the gods have been supplanted by the new shamans of medicine. Once you read the Metamorphoses, you'll start seeing it everywhere. They've been shape-shifting through every age and every culture. Despite Ovid dying in exile and his books being banned by Augustus Caesar, his work miraculously survived long enough to have famous and esteemed fans centuries later. Milton's daughter supposedly read her blind father the story of creation so often that she knew it by heart. According to A.D. Melville, one of Ovid's modern translators, for centuries Ovid's vogue was immense, but with the fading of the Renaissance, his reputation began to fade. The only complete translation of the Metamorphoses that came out in the 18th century was what is called the Garth Metamorphoses, a collaborative work featuring books translated by Pope, Addison and Dryden. It was published 15 years after Dryden's death, and yet he was still the chief contributor, translating almost a quarter of the whole book. Though Dryden is associated with the neoclassicism that reached its height in the 18th century, he died well before that, in 1700. As we shall see, he was something of a forerunner, a hinge, a transition himself between phases of literary development. He was born in 1631 in the town of Aldwinkle in Northamptonshire. Though raised in a Puritan household that favoured the Commonwealth, Dryden's early poem, On the Death of John Hastings, revealed that the poet had royalist leanings. He soon had reason to keep them to himself, as after studying at Cambridge, he was employed in Oliver Cromwell's government, along with his senior poets, Milton and Marvell. Upon Cromwell's death, he published his heroic stanzas in tribute. Yet only a year later, in 1660, he celebrated the restoration of Charles II in Astria Redux. Around the same time, he settled in London and married Lady Elizabeth Howard. Between 1663 and 1681, he became a prolific playwright, averaging almost a play a year. 
These include All for Love and the Conquest of Granada. In 1665, the Drydens fled the plague in London and moved to the Howards family estate in Wiltshire. There, Dryden wrote Annuus Mirabilis, a historical poem chronicling English naval conquests and the fire of London. Published the following year, it earned him the first official poet laureateship. In 1688, he would achieve the less welcome distinction of being the first and only poet laureate to be removed from office, when he refused to swear allegiance to the new Protestant English royals following their glorious revolution. Two years before, Dryden had converted to Roman Catholicism. He would spend the rest of his days writing plays, critical essays and prefaces, and most pertinently for us, verse translations and adaptations of Chaucer, Boccaccio, Virgil and Ovid. He died in 1700 and was buried in Westminster Abbey. Dryden may not be as well-loved as his contemporary poets, Milton and Marvell. Amongst Restoration plays, his are less likely to be staged than those of Afra Ben, George Farquhar or William Wycherley. And of the writers associated with the English Augustan age, Alexander Pope, Jonathan Swift and Daniel Defoe are much more familiar. Dryden sits somewhere in the middle, an alloy between the ages. According to Lee T. Percy, to put it briefly and over simply, at the end of the 16th century, style, the writer's disposition of words to achieve effects, was of secondary importance in the theory and conscious practice of literature. In this age, of course, as in any other, writers paid careful attention to style, but they did not believe that style was the most important concern. By the end of the 17th century, style had become not only the primary subject of literary theory, but almost the only one. This is due in part to the influence of John Dryden. In the previous episode on creation, we saw that Ovid's 16th century English translator, Golding, had aimed above all for accuracy. Although he recognised the appeal of Ovid's style, Golding made no attempt to match it. Being true to the stories was of chief importance. That's not to say this was true of all 16th century translators. Christopher Marlowe had also translated Ovid and had no such qualms about reaching for an English equivalent of the style of the original. Dryden was definitively opposed to Golding's method and saw literal translation as the servile path, free imitation as the libertine way. He was soft on the excesses of stylistically inclined authors, saying, "'Tis much more pardonable than that of those who run into the other extreme of a literal and close translation, where the poet, if confined so straightly to his author's words, that he wants elbow room to express his elegancies." Dryden was a devoted fan of Ovid and believed that his translations of the Roman ranked amongst his best work. Whether it be the partiality of an old man to his youngest child, I know not, but they appear to me to be the best of all my endeavours in this kind. Perhaps this poet is more easy to be translated than some others whom I have lately attempted. Perhaps, too, he was more according to my genius. Now, it's worth noting that saying my genius in Dryden's age was closer to saying my speciality or, or maybe even my department than my brilliance. The compliment here is being paid mostly to Ovid. The ease of translation, Dryden is intimating, must owe something to the original poet's innate sense of music, his pleasure-giving qualities. But that's not to say Dryden was without conceitedness. Commenting on Dryden's translation of Ovid, A.D. Melville says, he is often brilliant, but with the arrogance of his age, did not hesitate to improve. The arrogance of his age, the belief that a poet's sense of style was tantamount, was seemingly seemingly at odds with the requirements of translation. Although a new preoccupation with style was on the rise, people in Dryden's day still read classics in order to inform themselves about antiquity. Advanced archaeology was still a way off, and the primary way of experiencing the classical world was still through literature. Translation, therefore, carried a greater obligation to faithfulness than translation today might, which is perhaps what the poet in Dryden chivied against and decried as servile. 
Nowadays, if one was to translate Ovid or Homer for a commercial audience, it would be expected of them that there would be either a radical spin on the story, such as that of Pat Barker's recent novel, The Silence of the Girls, in which the events of Homer's Iliad are retold from a female point of view, or that well-known classic texts are translated by a well-known contemporary voice, such as the late Clive James's translation of The Divine Comedy a few years ago. It's hard to imagine a translation from the golden age, accuracy, being a commercial prospect, one for the academics and students alone, the classics being at once too difficult and too familiar to trouble bestseller lists. We also have the benefits that Dryden's age did not, the practical knowledge of the classical world abetted by modern archaeology. So in order to understand why Dryden and the neoclassicists that followed him believed that they could simultaneously ignore the servile path and also create informative translations, we must get a clearer picture of what they meant by style. Alexander Pope wrote in his famous essay on criticism that true expression, like the unchanging sun, clears and improves whatever it shines upon. It gilds all objects, but it alters none. Expression is the dress of thought and still appears more decent as more suitable. Style, provided it was in safe hands, is not exterior to content. The two are one and the same. Style, the neoclassicist believed, is able to gild but not alter, which is why they had no hesitations about attempting to improve. The servile path that Golding struggled down, wrestling his translation like an oversized suitcase down endless clunking fortinas, had missed the glories of Greco-Roman literature, that near-to-perfect imitation of nature as mortals could hope to reach, after which, as Lee T. Percy says, Dryden saw debasement of both culture and verse. Barbarous nations and more barbarous times debased the majesty of verse and rhymes. Of English translators from the age before him, Dryden said, they neither knew good verse nor loved it. They were scholars, tis true, but they were pedants, and as a just reward of their pedantic pains, all their translations want to be translated into English. He was also clear about what improvements there were to be made on Ovid's verse, which occasionally became monotonous and broke the bounds of good taste. Finding truth in style, Dryden believed the essential qualities of an author could be carried over in translation, provided the translator had a complementing genius. This had practical consequences on Dryden's verse, as Leete Percy explains. Seeking Ovidian smoothness and regularity, Dryden set stricter limits on the variety of his verse in translation than in his original works. But even before he set these limits, his verse was constrained by rhyme, by the brevity of the English couplet in contrast with the Latin, and by the tendency which had developed over the century past for units of expression to coincide with units of verse. In contrast, Ovid's longer line allowed for flights of digressive invention, and having no latent rule that the thought unit should correspond with the verse unit, meant that Ovid could change speed as and when he liked, perfect for an author who enjoyed episodic storytelling, skipping through what interested him less and slowing down to take in the sights elsewhere. As A.D. Melville said, In the original, the music of Ovid's hexameters is a delight. His swift and limpid narrative is often born on a stream of gorgeous sound. In contrast, says Percy, Dryden's couplets move like a rocking horse or a pendulum, Ovid's like a school of fish, wheel and dart from one side of the enclosing structure to the other. Rocking horse couplets or not, Dryden was hopeful, saying of his effort in this field, I hope I have translated them closely enough and given them the same turn of verse which they had in the original. And this, I may say, without vanity, is not the talent of every poet. Well, now you can be the judge of how successful he was. As with this episode on creation, I'll read through Dryden's version of the Four Ages story in full, pausing to add some extra detail or throw in a version from another poet. Instead of stopping intermittently, uh, I'm going to stop after each age to keep it simple. To recap, for those not on Patreon, we left the world freshly created out of chaos by an unnamed god, who put the elements in order, summoned forth the animals of the land, the birds above, the finny fish to their oozy beds. 
The climax of the creation story was the arrival of man, a different sort of beast made by Prometheus who mixed new earth with fresh rainwater. Unlike the animals, man keeps his head upright and with erected eyes beholds his own hereditary skies. That was how Dryden put it, and with his eyes on higher things, he begins his golden age. The golden age was first, when man yet knew, no rule but uncorrupted reason knew, and with a native bent did good pursue. Unforced by punishment, unawed by fear, his words were simple and his soul sincere. Needless was written law when none oppressed, the law of man was written in his breast. No suppliant crowds before the judge appeared, no court erected yet, nor cause was heard. But all was safe, for conscience was their guard. The mountain trees in distance prospect please. Ere yet the pine tree descended to the seas, ere sails were spread, new oceans to explore, and happy mortals, unconcerned for more, confined their wishes to their native shore. No walls were yet, nor fence, nor moat, nor mound, nor drum was heard, nor trumpet's angry sound. Nor swords were forged, but void of care and crime, the soft creations slept away their time. And teeming earth, yet guiltless of the plough, and unprovoked, did fruitful stores allow. Content with food, which nature freely bred, on wildings and on strawberries they fed. Cornels and brambleberries gave the rest, and falling acorns furnished out a feast. The flowers unsown in fields and meadows reigned, and western winds a mortal spring maintained. In following years the bearded corn ensued, from earth unasked, nor was that earth renewed. From veins of valleys milk and nectar broke, and honey sweating through the pores of oak. A pretty sickly start, dossing around in a land of milk and honey, scoffing strawberries. It doesn't get much more golden than this. According to Robert Graves, the myth of the Golden Age derives eventually from a tradition of tribal subservience to the bee goddess. The savagery of her reign in pre-agricultural times had been forgotten by Hesiod's day, and all that remained was an idealistic conviction that men had once lived in harmony, together like bees. Hesiod, incidentally, one of Ovid's sources, tells the same story with five ages. There's golden vegetarians, a silver age, two more brazen ages, one glorious, one not and then a degenerate iron. Golden ages, like ages of anxiety, are everywhere and depend on beholders more than bee goddesses. In the late 16th century, England was supposedly enjoying a golden age, the reign of Elizabeth I, a time of relative peace, posterity, and flourishing culture. At the same time, the new world was being discovered, and its inhabitants thought to be living in a golden age close to what Ovid describes, innocents feeding off the land. As one empire was for forming, an old one was looking back on its own heyday. In Spain, Cervantes had his Don Quixote reflect on a lost golden age. Fortunate the age and fortunate the times called golden by the ancients, and not because gold, which in this our age of iron is so highly esteemed, could be found then without, with no effort, but because those who lived in that time did not know the two words thine and mine. In that blessed age, all things were owned in common. No one for his daily sustenance needed to do more than lift his hand and pluck it from the sturdy oaks that so liberally invited him to share their sweet and flavoursome fruit. The clear fountains and rushing rivers offered delicious, transparent waters in magnificent abundance. In the fissures of rocks and the hollows of trees, diligent and clever bees established their colonies, freely offering to any hand the fertile harvest of their sweet labour. Translators differ on giving nature or the earth its own agency. Dryden puts it that the earth as yet was guiltless of the plough, whereas in Arthur Golding, the earth sounds more like a virgin. The fertile earth as yet was free, untouched of spade or plough. 
Already we are anticipating, in the successive ages, nature being subjected to a kind of rape. Dryden is less sexually suggestive, but implies that the teeming earth, once provoked, will withhold its fruitful stores, acting more like a scorned god than an abused virgin. Dryden reserves the forcing language for the effect of punishment and law on man, and it is tempting to draw an analogy between the conscience, the unwritten law written in man's breast, and Dryden's own confidence in the ability of the poet of corresponding genius to match that of Ovid's. Since there is no conflict as yet, this section is a little listy, even more so in elongated lines of Golding, such as where he says these vegetarians did live by raspis, heps and haws, by cornels, plums and cherries, by sloes and apples, nuts and pears, and lothsome brambleberries. Interesting that the Golden Age folk are vegetarian. In the last book of the Metamorphoses, we will hear from Pythagoras, who gives a passionate argument for vegetarianism, saying that the earth provides ample sustenance and it is only for the beasts to tear flesh from flesh. Springtime it was, says A.D. Melville in his version, always forever spring. But alas for the world's inhabitants, but at some relief to us, beginning to feel that the golden age is a bit sugary, that is about to change. But when good Saturn, banished from above, was driven to hell, the world was under Jove. Succeeding times a silver age behold, excelling brass, but more excelled by gold. Then summer, autumn, winter did appear, and spring was but a season of the year. The sun his annual course obliquely made, good days contracted and enlarged the bad. Then air with sultry years began to glow, the wings of winds were clogged with ice and snow, and shivering mortals into houses driven sought shelter from the inclemency of heaven. Those houses then were caves or homely sheds, with twining osiers fenced and moss their beds. Then ploughs for seed the fruitful furrows broke, and oxen laboured first beneath the yoke. This is our first mention of a major character in the Metamorphoses, Jove. The banishing to hell reference omits a gorier detail from mythology. Jove, or Jupiter, winning the battle for supremacy with Saturn, castrates his rival and throws his genitals into the sea. From the foam... This created grew Venus, a kind of testicle sea monkey who we will be meeting later on in the book. Although man gets a chiding in some versions for turning to the plough, it is clear that the ending of the Golden Age is in fact the fault of the gods, Jove in particular. Nature becomes inclement, and man has to therefore build houses and plough the earth. Next come the age of freckled brass, as Golding calls it, the Brazen Age. To this came next in course the Brazen Age, a warlike offspring, prompt to bloody rage, not impious yet. Hard steel succeeded them. In Dryden, there is only a couplet and a half of the Brazen Age, after which we go straight into the Age of Iron, and the rhyme links the two together. We'll get there shortly, but not before seeing quickly how Ted Hughes renders his own brazen people, as souls fashioned on the same anvil as the blades their hands snatched up before they cooled. Puts Dryden to shame in terms of effect. There's a self-enfolded sense to Hughes' lines, almost as if the souls and the blades are being impossibly forged in the same instant, the people becoming quite literally brazen, made of metal. Back to Dryden and on to the Iron Age. Not in pious yet, hard steel succeeded then, and stubborn as the metal were the men. Truth, modesty and shame the world forsook, fraud, avarice and force their places took. Then sails were spread to every wind that blew, raw were the sailors and the depths were new. Trees rudely hollowed did the waves sustain, ere ships in triumph ploughed the watery plain. Then landmarks limited to each his right, for all before was common as the light. Nor was the ground alone required to bear her annual income to the crooked share. But greedy mortals, rummaging her store, digged from her entrails first the precious ore, which next to hell the prudent gods had laid, 
and that alluring ill to sight displayed. Thus cursed steel and more cursed gold gave mischief birth and made that mischief bold, and double death did wretched man invade, by steel assaulted and by gold betrayed. Now, brandished weapons glittering in their hands, mankind is broken loose from mortal bands. No rites of hospitality remain, the guest by him who harboured him is slain. The son-in-law pursues the father's life, the wife her husband murders, he the wife. The stepdame poison for the son prepares, the son inquires into his father's years. Stubborn is the metal with the men, like in hues, the die is cast, the people themselves become inflexible as hardened steel. The destruction of nature is begin, begins in earnest with the rude hollowing out of the trees which are used as boats to further plough the plains of the ocean. Instead of taking only what they require from their annual store, they digged in their entrails. In Golding, this comes out as, nor did the earth's rich return of crops and food suffice, the bowels of the earth were forced. And in Ted Hughes, man tore open the earth and rummaged in her bowels. Much is made of this double death, man owing his downfall to two metals, by steel assaulted and by gold betrayed. So now iron comes with its cruel ideas, and gold with crueler, says Ted Hughes. And he goes on. Last comes the age of iron, and the day of evil dawns. Modesty, loyalty, truth go up like a mist, a morning sigh off a graveyard. Violence is an extrapolation of the cutting edge into the orbit of the smile. Now comes the love of gain, a new god made out of the shadow of all the others, a god who peers grinning from the roots of the eye-teeth. There's a neat circularity in having the peak of decline represented by a literal gold, the afterimage of that first most perfect age, a sullied memento. The comic possibilities of Dryden's shorter couplets are evidenced by the son-in-law pursues the father's life, the wife her husband murders, he the wife. According to Wordsworth, whenever Dryden's language is poetically impassioned, it is mostly upon unpleasing subjects, such as the follies, vices and crimes of classes of men or of individuals, which is probably why there's a lot more colour in the last age than the first. Arthur Golding translates the same line, To see their fathers live so long the children do bewail, as Melville puts it, sons importunate to the glut their greed studied the stars to time their father's death. And in Mandelbaum, the husband plots the death of his own wife and she plots his. And that brings us to the end of the story of the Four Ages. Next will come more calamity for these cursed Iron Age folk who will be subjected to terrible metamorphoses put on by Jove, somewhat unfairly punishing the evil he has created. And further along, we'll see giants, serpents, and a, and a flood to rival the Bible. So look out for that. If you would like to listen to the first um, story, the creation story, do check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash this. We'll be back very soon. Um, for now, happy reading. 